The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion hosted by Michael Guyot. I'm excited for this conversation. A lot we're going to be talking about as it relates to China. Certainly not as focused on the investing side of things, but obviously has implications for all investors. So with all that said, my name is Michael Guyot, publisher of The Lead Lag Report. Joining me for is Taylor Fravel. Taylor, introduce yourself to the audience. Who are you? What's your background? How'd you get involved, interested in what you do for your career? And what are you doing currently? Sure, thanks. So my name is Taylor Fravel. I am a political science professor at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. I also direct MIT's security studies program, which is an educational effort sort of devoted to doing policy relevant research on security questions and kind of training the next generation of PhD students. So my academic work focuses almost exclusively on China's foreign security and defense policies. I focus on sort of two sort of main topics so far in my career. The first is China's sort of behavior in its many territorial disputes, most prominently today, say, you know, South China Sea, East China Sea, China, India, and of course, Taiwan, as well as China's approach to military strategy or, or how the People's Liberation Army goes about planning and preparing to use military force. Sort of other topics I've covered have to do with China's approach to nuclear weapons, and most recently, the expansion or the drivers of the expansion of its nuclear forces and uh, dabble on other kind of China-related subjects, including kind of why countries even join the Belt and Road Initiative and sort of what sort of channels of influence the Belt and Road Initiative has opened up for China in its interactions with participating countries. I got into this business really by a twist of fate, if you will. When I was 16, my father was transferred by his employer to work in Taiwan. For two years, I ended up going to high school in Taiwan at the American school there. I'd never really left the United States before. It was not, had very little exposure to the outside, to the world outside the United States and came back really eager to learn more about the region that I lived in. And so got interested in learning Chinese. And here I am, you know, now 30 odd years later, professor of Chinese politics. So great to be here. So I had Pippa Malmgren on a space about a week ago, and her belief is that you know, we're already in a in a quasi world war, largely because of information warfare. How does technology and information warfare factor into that point you mentioned earlier about around foreign security and defense when it comes to China? Sure. I mean, I guess there's a narrow way of looking at this and a broader way of looking at it. The narrow way would be to say that if one looks at sort of warfare 
historically, certainly in the 20th century and beyond, right? A, a key factor shaping the character of war is how different technologies have been used at different points in time, right? To create war fighting capabilities. And so on the, on the, I mean, the narrow end by which, or in the narrow sense, what I mean here is by thinking about how to improve the precision of bombs or missiles and things like that, how to improve targeting to improve precision. All of these things, right, are now deeply integrated into information networks. And both kind of the U.S. approach to warfare today and what we understand to be China's evolving approach, both focus on this sort of U.S. idea of net-centric warfare. The Chinese have an odd term for this, informatization, which is a the informatization of warfare or being preparing to fight informatized local wars. And this is a very clunky translation of a Chinese term. In Chinese, it's xinxihua, basically means the application of IT to other things. So that's in the narrow sense. We're seeing this play out in Ukraine with the role of drones, for example, electronic warfare to counter drones and so forth. Then there's the broader sense, which is shaping the information environment. I think I'm a traditionalist in the sense I wouldn't call this war the same way I wouldn't talk about a war on drugs, right? I mean, wars to me as a scholar armed conflict have a very particular meaning about how states use violence to to pursue their objectives. And there are many ways states can pursue their objectives that are not violent. And can, doing so in the information space is another big one available, but it has many different components, right? Ranging from kind of diplomacy and public diplomacy to sort of messaging and propaganda to everything that would be related to sort of using cyber to interfere in elections such as you know, 2016 and so forth, right? So that's a huge broad space. I think lots of states are competing in it. It's clearly a competition. I don't mean to sound like a pedantic professor, but I'm, I guess I would, personally speaking, at least I would I would shy away from necessarily calling it a war unless it is linked right to the application violence. Yeah, no, and I think the, these get to be nuanced conversations, right? Because, you know, to the extent that, for example, China might be sowing the seeds of discontent through what their algorithms are showing on TikTok, as an example. Yeah, you can argue that's not China waging war on the U.S., but if it creates among a society, among a culture, more division, that can lead to internal fighting within a culture. Yeah, sure. I think that's absolutely right, whether or not but that's a that's a deliberate outcome of a tweaking of an algorithm or something else, so right, is the important question. So social media, right, which did not begin with TikTok, probably had, you know, or you know, other experts believe, right, had a pretty important impact on sort of the current polarization of American society, which creates opportunities, right, for other other actors to try to push in those seams. But I think you know, China's you know, general, or I think where it's most prominent, right, is in their efforts, right, because there's a very robust propaganda apparatus, right, which includes party channels, other channels, right, really to try to shape the a view of the world, right, that is in their interests and sort of weakens their sort of opponents or their adversaries or other actors. And so, you know, what I've noticed in the last several years, right, in kind of U.S.-China diplomacy has really become, you know, a, a figurative narrative battle, obviously not an actual battle, but a way to try to seize sort of the rhetorical high ground in how the two countries characterize each other and their intentions, right? And so both, for different reasons, right, have come to to try to essentially delegitimate the other as a reliable international actor. So right, in the U.S. perspective, right, China's 
the challenge to the you know global rules-based order, which you know, the U.S. had a significant role in creating. And right, China now rails against. I'm not even going to get this straight, but hegemonism, unilateralism, protectionism, etc., to sort of highlight the way in which, right, again, from their messaging standpoint, the United States is sort of harming global growth opportunities and the source of greater instability in the world and so forth. And so this is really a pretty broad-ranging effort. And you see it in, you know, talking points from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. You see it in opinion piece, you know, editorials and opinion pieces that are published on the Chinese news agency Xinhua. You see it on, you know, Twitter accounts, right? And in some ways, the Chinese have been learning a lot from the Russians and trying to sort of shape that space and then shape sort of what is legitimate and what is not legitimate. That's often a line that you hear that, and you kind of alluded to it, that China is a superpower, that it's, you know, shaking up the world order. When I look at it from an economic standpoint, it looks like China is not going to be anywhere near as effective at influencing things, to your point about the hegemony dynamic. What does the popular narrative get wrong about China as a superpower and Again, this idea that, you know, it's us versus them. I don't think China's own conception would be that it's a superpower. I think their own conception would be that that they are seeking the country's national rejuvenation, perhaps restoring a place of centrality and influence and even preeminence in, in Asia. But I think from a, a global perspective, in terms of my view of a superpower, right, as a, as a power that can project all forms of power around the world. It's really quite uneven, right? From a military standpoint, China currently only has one overseas base, doesn't have a lot of force. This is in Djibouti, doesn't have a lot of forces there. Has a pier for naval ships, but I'm not sure how many naval Chinese naval ships have called at that port yet. Not many. There's a construction of a somewhat similar facility in Cambodia. There, although it's not, I think, going to be a base that has troops, at least as far as we know at the moment. But in this perspective, right, their global military footprint is smaller than Russia's, it's smaller than Britain's, it's smaller than France's, and it's much smaller than that of the United States, which has military facilities and bases in, I think, roughly 40 countries around the world. So from a sort of conventional military operations standpoint, China is still very much focused on East Asia for good reasons, because of the unresolved, from their standpoint, dispute over Taiwan and their desire to achieve Taiwan's unification and the fact that they have not forsworn under certain conditions the use of force to achieve this goal. Of course, you know, opposition to that goal from Taiwan and at least from a forceful unification perspective from the United States and so forth. Right. Then they've got the dispute with India, which not nearly as important as or potentially escalatory, I think, is the one over Taiwan, at least to high levels of escalation. But nevertheless, right, these are two large excuse me, two countries with large militaries, nuclear forces, et cetera. We look at it from the nuclear side, China's significantly expanding and modernizing its nuclear forces to where maybe from that dimension, one might consider it a a nuclear superpower in a decade. We'll have to see where that ends up. But where China really is making perhaps the greatest inroads, although I'd be curious to exchange or hear your views on this, but is on the economic side and to some degree on the diplomatic side, right? So China is now the leading trading partner for well over 100 countries. I've lost track of how many that, how many would be on that list at the moment, which right, suggests a degree of kind of reach in the world that is quite significant. 
Then if we look at a very simple metric, this comes out of the Lowy Institute in Australia. I think it's around the data sort of pre-pandemic, say 2019, but right, I think around that time, right, China had slightly more diplomatic missions abroad than the United States did. And that sort of undercounts China's presence because China doesn't have diplomatic relations now with about 14 states that still recognize Taiwan, right? And China also doesn't have missions in places like NATO and so forth that the U.S. does. And so China's invested very heavily in its diplomatic presence in a way that does, I think, perhaps compensate for some of the lack of its military reach. We saw this most vividly in recent years, perhaps in the Pacific Islands, Solomon Islands and so forth, where in a number of these countries, right, the U.S. had greatly reduced, but not withdrawn its diplomatic presence, had diplomatic ties with them, but may have only had one or two people in country. And so that's obviously changing now as the Pacific Islands have sort of come to the forefront of sort of U.S.-China competition. But nevertheless, I think reflects the fact that China invests very heavily in its sort of diplomatic posture in ways that I think the U.S. probably underinvests or has perhaps at least taken for granted for too long, right? So, so in that sense, I'm not sure China sees itself as a superpower. I think one other way in which they might not see themselves as a superpower is with respect to their economy. And although right, the economy has obviously developed tremendously over the last 30 to 40 years, you know, there's still significant pockets of or places in the country that are quite poor and under, underdeveloped. And so I think China, you know, Chinese leaders may look at sort of the uneven economic growth within the country as sort of signifying it hadn't yet reached a level of stability that you might associate with a superpower. And then finally on the technological front, as we saw with the semiconductor restrictions, right, China sees itself as facing a series of foreign technology choke points that can be restricted such that it would frustrate or slow down or limit China's efforts to develop leading companies in these sectors. Again, not necessarily what one might associate with superpower. So I think their probably view is, is a little bit different. I think they see themselves as seeking to balance against the United States and have you know significant global reach in many areas, but nevertheless not in a position really to proactively influence a lot of these areas as much as the United States or perhaps some other countries can, especially when they're sort of far from Asia. Yeah, and actually that military point I think is interesting. I mean, I guess you can argue that the compensation there is, while they may not have as larger presence militarily, they certainly have the ability to cut off, you know, medications, right, that that are developed in China. I've had several people have made that point that, you know, there's so much reliance on just pharmaceuticals from China, right? So their supply chain entrenchment is really the ultimate bargaining power more so than the size and sophistication of the military. I think that's right. And you know, that goes both ways, right? Because they have vulnerabilities too. But clearly, right, we saw some of this in critical minerals or rare earths, which aren't necessarily that rare, but or at least are rarely made outside or rarely refined outside of China at the moment and so forth. Yeah, that's a good point. Since you mentioned semiconductor restrictions, I know you want to talk about Raimondo's trip, and I haven't seen this just headline-wise on the periphery, but all the talking heads from what I saw basically emphasize this point that it's kind of a strange dynamic, right? There, there's restrictions on trade, but then wanting to expand on trade, having your cake and eating it too to some extent. Maybe just lay out for the audience, what is the sort of current administration's stand on free trade, if such a thing ever exists, 
in general okay. to China? And you know, what direction does the administration currently want to go in? So I believe they, they have set a lot of direction, which is to limit interactions in areas with military potential and significant military potential. So this would be sort of our examples, right, would include the investment restrictions that were announced recently, limiting the ability of American firms to invest in certain sectors, including semiconductors with military applications. This includes the October 7th sort of suite of restrictions on U.S. technology going to China's semiconductor industry and so forth. At the same time, I think Raimondo has made this point quite explicitly, but also Janet Yellen, also Jake Sullivan on the National Security Council, that right, the U.S. does not seek to halt all trade. And so one with China or all economic interactions with China. And I think partly it's a reflection. I think the political intent, right, is to signal or to put some credibility behind the administration's position, right, that it seeks both to compete, cooperate, and confront China in different dimensions, but it's not a policy of sort of blanket competition or confrontation. And so where the issue, right, doesn't involve national security on the economic side, the administration sees no in compelling reason, right, to limit that interaction. I think rhetorically, this is associated with a shift from talking about decoupling to de-risking. And these are both somewhat ambiguous and vague terms. And I think, nevertheless, de-risking suggests, right, that the scope of the separation will be smaller or I think decoupling, right, sort of implies divorce and complete separation. And so so I think it also reflects right, the economic reality that America still has a really significant trading relationship with China, both as an importer and as an exporter, and that American firms right, still have very significant economic stakes and interests in China. I don't have the numbers handy, but I believe the revenue of U.S. multinationals in China, right, it, exceeds the total volume of U.S.-China trade. Now, that, you know, how much profit comes back is a different matter. But the point being, right, there, there are big U.S. firms operating and growing their businesses in China. And so I think it's also a reflection of the fact that you know, the short-term costs of right, halting all this activity would be quite significant and would not just be significant for the Chinese economy, but also for the U.S. economy. So I think Raimondo right, wears two hats in this environment because the ministry of, or sorry, the Department of Commerce, right, is intent, right, is to promote American business and exports and trade. Whereas part of the Department of Commerce, right, BIS, right, is meant to focus on export controls. And that's you know, sort of been the main channel through which economic restrictions have put, been placed on sort of Chinese entities through a variety of different administrative mechanisms. And so in some ways, she balances both the need to compete and to restrict exchanges in areas like semiconductors with the more general imperative of that department traditionally, right, which is to pr- promote American business, which right, still sells a lot to China. Not a lot as necessarily other export markets, but it's not insignificant in terms of U.S. trade. Yeah, you, you confirmed something that I myself have said many times over the last several years, which is, you know, the deglobalization narrative makes no sense because... The large firms, to your point, have a significant revenue that comes from China. Lobbyists are hired by those large firms. So, you know, it makes for a good talking point. But in practice, it's something that never really happens. Now, I am curious just, you know, in terms of negotiations, I think 
you often hear in the media that, you know, negotiations are happening and, you know, Raimondo's doing this or that. But, yeah, you know, I'm sure there's so many nuances and back channel conversations that happen. How much of trips like this are for real progress versus just optics? We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now, back to our discussion. So I'm going to paraphrase Joe and Lai's assessment of the French Revolution in 1968, which is it's too soon to tell, <laughs> right? But this, so far, right, this, I mean, she's been there for a day. I think two different working groups have been established. One on export controls that will have its first meeting tomorrow or the next day, but this week. I think uh, another working group on sort of broader bilateral economic exchanges. And if those groups do become new channel to address some of these issues, then I think that would be a positive development because there's been really very little interactions between the U.S. and Chinese governments, you know, for the last three years, right? It's, at least in my sort of period as a scholar of Chinese foreign policy and U.S.-China relations, this is, you know, these last few years have been, you know, the period, a period of time that, you know, much more closely resembles the early Cold War than any other period where, you know, partly it's COVID created, not a lot of travel between the countries until you know, earlier, sort of starting in May of this year between officials and so forth. And so I think this particular visit is an important one because it does seem to have some deliverables, however small, even if those deliverables themselves, right, still have to sort of be put into practice and see what they can produce. But I think it's in that sense, it's progress in trying to manage some of these issues. And I think it's progress in terms of sort of sharpening the administration's kind of variegated approach in terms of, you know, competing, cooperating, and confronting. Because I think the Chinese very much doubted whether or not the U.S. had any interest in cooperation. And the U.S. desires Chinese cooperation in other issues, which is not to say that I think this administration is going to sort of link their desire for cooperation with the Chinese desire to reduce competition, but I think it it makes it more credible that the U.S. can and is it can sort of do both at the same time because there's a lot of talk about you know cooperating while competing or competing while cooperating, but not necessarily putting a lot of it in, in, into practice. And I think it reflects right that even if the U.S. business community you know has soured to some degree on China, and that it remains an important market now. There's some interesting questions that I'm not really qualified to answer about the future of trajectory of the Chinese economy, right? And and what that means for the American economy. But you know, the two economies are pretty closely integrated in certain respects, such that, you know, a downturn in one is going to affect the other. So China could, right, if it really faces economic headwinds, right, reduce some of its American imports. Conversely, right, if the US faces certain economic headwinds, that's going to hurt Chinese industries. And so there's a way in which you're managing that economic relationship, I think, remains important to both sides. I have to say, it's interesting that you say that it's 
you know, the communication or just engagement with China has been, you know, so low the last three years, again, with the COVID, you know, part of it, obviously a big factor there. But as I hear you say that, it sounds surprising because I would have thought that, you know, under the Trump administration, relations would have been, you know, far worse. Well, there was, they were certainly quite fraud, especially in the last year, right after, basically after COVID began to spread the United States, right? But up until that point, even as the trade war kind of deepened and accelerated, you had kind of, you know, delegations going back and forth. And you had actually on the military side, right, a really significant crisis communications channel that was used in October or the fall of 2020, right, when there were significant concerns on the Chinese side that uh, then President Trump might engage in some kind of an October surprise or action against China to boost his chances in the polls. This is all now you know, out in the public domain. That crisis communications channel, as far as I know, remains dormant, right? has never been used in the Biden administration. And so, and for other reasons, right, and the, that have to do with who is the right counterpart for the defense secretary on the Chinese side, you know, limited, I think, some military to military communications. Chinese peak against sort of the U.S. Taiwan policy has also limited this, especially the aftermath of Speaker Pelosi's visit to Taiwan last summer. But in, in some areas, right, there was perhaps more communication in parts of the Trump period than there have, has been under the Biden administration. But you had sort of various virtual phone calls between Xi and Biden. You had some in-person meetings involving Anthony Blinken and Jake Sullivan and their counterparts from China. But it, so not to say that sort of a complete, no, not actually complete communications blackout by any stretch, but not kind of what one might have expected from the before times if, say, you hadn't had the disruption, I think, that the pandemic imposed. And so, so you know, it it's important, in my view, because of the size and influence the countries have on each other, that even if you don't get along on all issues or even on many issues, right, you still have to communicate right, just by virtue of your capacities to essentially, you know, you know, to put it too bluntly, right, but to be able to harm the other side or to be harmed, right, that you need to have that kind of communication. This may, you know, can, you know we've seen a number of the U.S. visits, their cabinet-level visits to China since May. There have been some Chinese visits to the United States. There are you know, outstanding invitations to the Chinese foreign minister, although the foreign minister changed from Qinggang back to Wangyi. The commerce minister, who's Raimondo's counterpart, had visited the United States earlier in the year. And then everything is sort of building up to November when the United States will host the APEC meeting in San Francisco, which most people expect Xi Jinping to attend in person, which would then create you know an opportunity for the first in-person meeting between President Biden and Xi Jinping. And so I think things are generally kind of trending or tracking in that direction, but it's taken sort of a while to get there. Just to reset the room for the remaining minutes, so everybody please make sure you follow uh, Taylor Fravel here on X. So if you want to come up and ask questions, click that bottom left mic request button. And as always, this will be a podcast under Lead Lag Live. There's a question in the thread here, Taylor, from Skeptical Investor about the probabilities of a great war starting, you know, you hear these kind of rumblings of more and more ships circling Taiwan. Is this just, again, optic bluster? Or do you think that people are underestimating the possibility of, you know, something more imminent when it comes to Taiwan? Great question. I don't think, I think fundamentally still, right, China pursues a political approach to achieving unification. 
and not a pure military one, which is to say it's not waiting until it's strong enough to invade and then invading. It's trying to cajole Taiwan to eventually hold talks on unification. That includes a variety of coercive measures, including the use of or the greater and you know, tempo and frequency of Chinese military operations in the air and water around Taiwan. This began, right, don't quote me exactly on the date, I think the increased air presence, which is measured by the Taiwan Ministry of Defense by the number of airplanes that enter Taiwan's Air Defense Identification Zone, also known as an ADIS. I think it's important to note for your listeners, an aid is not a is not the same thing as territorial airspace, which would really only be the air above a country or out 12 nautical miles, but it is a an aircraft management zone for the purposes of kind of national security. And there are a number of these air defense identification zones throughout the world. An interesting element of international kind of interaction that has no real standards. So Taiwan's Formal aid is extends significantly over parts of China going back to, you know, the 1950s to monitor, you know, Chinese aircraft, I suppose, flying on the mainland. So this begins around 2019, kind of accelerates in 2020, 2021. And occasionally China will send really big packages, you know. We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. 20, 30 airplanes at once are in one day and often to signal their displeasure over something that Taiwan does that it dislikes or something, you know, such as receiving a high level U.S. delegation. So these happened in the summer of 2020 when various, very senior you know, Trump administration officials traveled to Taiwan. And then after Secretary, sorry, excuse me, Speaker Pelosi visited Taiwan in summer 2020, August 2020, China began to sort of escalate it further by not only increasing its operations around the island, but also crossing what's known as the median line, which is sort of an informal halfway point between sort of the coast of China and the coast of Taiwan. And historically, like, planes have not crossed it as a way of sort of maintaining stability. Now China's crossing it, like, much more frequently than before. So far, right, these are all ways of kind of using military tools to use sort of very general threat of military force, right, to reflect China's resolve to pursue unification and often in the context of opposing or reacting to something that Taiwan is doing. But China's military modernization more generally has been keyed to fighting what the Chinese call sort of local wars under, sorry, just local informatized wars, excuse me. Of course, Taiwan has been kind of the main scenario in this sense for PLA modernization as well as for PLA doctrine. At the same time, right, as China's approach to Taiwan has changed and it's also, you know, weakened or it's picked off different countries that previously had diplomatic relations with Taiwan and used the lure of large aid packages to get them to switch their diplomatic recognition. Squeezing, you know, China's been squeezing Taiwan's international space in other ways, engaging in certain kinds of information uh, operations and so forth, right? So it's 
it's general, definitely increasing uh, the pressure. But I don't think China is at a point where it has concluded that it has no option other than achieving unification through a major military action. And so these are part of, one could view these military signals in many ways as part of a Chinese toolkit that goes back at least to the Taiwan Straits crisis in 1995 and 96, when President, then President Li Donghui visited the United States and Taiwan had its first kind of free and open presidential election the following year. But that, all that being said, right, it is also now, right, China is now the pacing challenge for the United States military. So we're seeing a much greater kind of called action reaction kind of relationship in the military sphere. Sort of the withdrawal from the INF treaty has sort of helped to accelerate parts of this by allowing the U.S. to deploy certain kinds of missile systems in Asia with less res- restrictions than before. And so, so you have, or, or this has, I guess, two consequences. One would be you're just going to have more opportunities for accidents, collisions, things that could then sort of take on a life of their own and escalate. But you also have China perhaps believing that, whether it's correct or not, right, believing that the United States has is undergoing a shift in its own policy towards Taiwan, which used to be marked by strategic amb- ambiguity under the One China policy, which viewed Taiwan's status as undetermined, but, you know, and so forth, to something that would actually like to see sort of Taiwan's permanent right, separation from China. In other words, sort of entrenching the current status quo, but making it, I suppose, even more permanent, which would be a shift in, in a U.S. position. Of course, China would be that, right, as a significant challenge, and that might elicit a sort of Chinese desire to increase its military signaling against the United States, which right, would then sort of feed this spiral. So I think it's a very tense moment and one that requires very careful attention from policymakers from both sides, because it is you know, the one issue that could spark a high-intensity conflict between you know, two nuclear arms military powers right, in Asia. And so, so I, you know, the baseline probability is probably pretty low. I don't think it's China's preferred option like, to pursue unification in that way. But if the various political attacks that China is using don't bear fruit at some point, they may come to rely even more on pursuing a military approach, or they may conclude you know, correctly or incorrectly that, that they have no other option. So the consequences right, of miscalculating this are very high, given the capabilities that the United States and China possess, and given that they both possess significant arsenals of nuclear weapons, and you know, China's arsenal is growing quite significantly as we speak. Should we be thinking about the impact of just increasing youth unemployment in China as far as how that might impact military actions? I've had a number of people on these spaces make the argument that, you know, China recently now is no longer going to be reporting yeah. youth unemployment. And the argument there is, well, you know, if that gets worse and worse, one way to keep the youth, like what we're saying it, in check is through some kind of nationalistic campaign, which probably involves some kind of military conflict. Any is that just sort of you know a conspiracy type thinking, or is there a risk that those dynamics impact what China does next? So my own view on this question is that it's sort of the question. It's another way of asking, right? Is China or Xi Jinping or China's leaders are they going to engage in a diversionary war, right? Or you you gin up a conflict exactly right, in, in right. another country exactly. to distract the unhappy people in your own country and. Builds on this idea that, you know, in wartime, 
populations, quote, rally around the flag and are more willing to support leaders they otherwise wouldn't support. I'm skeptical of this for a whole host of reasons, one of which is the logic of diversion itself. And so if you are a leader, right, wants to divert his dissatisfied public's attention, and he, and he wants to do so by through some sort of foreign policy gambit, right? He needs to be successful, right? From a military standpoint. So that means picking a relatively tough target or something that really matters. So Taiwan really matters, but from a military operational perspective, it's also a very tough target, right? Because in the ultimate sort of scenario, right, China you know, would have to you know, engage in an amphibious assault, which is you know, far and away the most complicated kind of modern military operation to execute. Because the only thing worse, right, than engaging in a diversionary gambit is then failing in that gambit, especially if it's over a really important national like issue, such as something for China like Taiwan. And so on the one hand, if there is this incentive, I think leaders don't always have the options we might think that they have. So for example, China could decide to engage in some kind of you know, use of force against, say, the Philippines, a small country, you know, take back second Thomas Shoal. But this wouldn't really do much to divert the public's attention, right? So it's e easily achievable, but not necessarily very helpful domestically. If China then launched a media campaign about how it prevailed over the Philippines, the reaction of many in China might be, well, we should prevail over the Philippines because they're a much smaller country. So I think given the importance of Taiwan, given that Taiwan is the one issue that might have the greatest utility in terms of producing a rally, a rally around the flag effect, it also has the greatest risk. And so that's sort of the first reason. The second reason is China has, as we saw with the sort of demonstrations last fall over the COVID lockdown policies, a tremendous suite of sort of social control tools it can use to monitor and preempt or to quickly extinguish protests that might arise criticizing sort of central government policies, right? So if you remember last fall, there were a few days when there were these series of protests in multiple countries, multiple cities in China at the same time. So that itself was really noteworthy. Like that, you know, the government in Beijing greatly fears a sort of horizontal proliferation of protests simultaneously, because that suggests, you know, a broad base of support for the goals of the protest. But within days, right, most of the individuals who participated were identified through their cell phones by virtue of right, the location of their phone with respect to the protest. And it was sort of quickly, short, it, it fizzled. Now, China also changed policy shortly thereafter. I don't think it was solely or entirely in direct response to those protests, but I think it, China might not have, but I think it still would have sort of been able to sort of clamp down on those or to sort of prevent the domestic threat from those protests pretty quickly. And then finally, of course, on the propaganda side, right, China has an impressive set of tools for controlling, you know, political messaging within the country that would very clearly allow it to limit the ability of, or sort of immunize itself a little bit from this potential for domestic protest, because it basically would give it no sort of no airtime, right? And you'd have a counter kind of propaganda effort going on. So I think it's, I think it'd be, you know, it seems very intuitive. Leaders might do this. We often all or I should say there's a psychological tendency to believe it's something that our opponents are even more likely to do since it's somewhat unscrupulous, right? To use sort of something as important as the use of force for kind of parochial domestic political interests. But I think 
right? It's very hard to do in ways that protect the leader from the downside risks. And if there are many other ways to address sort of the source of discontent, which I think China still has, then it's really unlikely we're going to see China you know, become more aggressive against Taiwan to deal with youth unemployment. Youth unemployment, I mean, it's bad at the moment. It's gone through other periods when it's been bad. And I think you know, we will see, most likely, the government come up with a different kind of set of much more economically targeted responses to that. We may not see some of these responses until the third plenum, which is going to be sometime in October, but I expect we we will see them then. Finally, historically, right, China's gone through great periods of domestic upheaval that haven't produced diversionary kind of action. You know, the most two, you know, post or two relatively recent ones, one would be the stock market crash in 2015. And that was not, you know, associated with large external actions. You had the island building in the South China Sea earlier in 2014, but nothing really significant in 2015. Go back earlier to, you know, the some weeks and weeks of demonstrations in Tiananmen Square in 1989 leading up to sort of the crackdown and massacre of students in Tiananmen Square. Again, no effort to engage in diversion, right? That's probably when we would have expected it most. And so I think when you have these Leninist political parties that do fairly penetrate society fairly deeply. They have a lot of other options for dealing with domestic discontent than engaging in diversionary behavior. Put your futurist hat on for a bit. Where do you think China would be relative to other countries in a hundred years? And the reason I'm asking that is there's a question in the audience around, you know, how do, how does an aging population factor into China's dominance on the world stage? Great question. And I'm terrible at like futurism. <laughs> like I, I have a hard enough time figuring out what I believe is going to happen five years from now. But I think it, it may very well be, and again, I'm not an economist. I don't want to make projections, but it may very well be that China does not overtake the United States to become the world's largest economy, or it may overtake in a much longer period of time than we imagine. But as your listener notes, right, it is a rapidly now rapidly aging population, and it will need to focus much more on right, productivity gains to maintain competitiveness. Now, all that said, doesn't I don't think China needs to overtake the United States sort of globally to be the most dominant and consequential country in Asia, which it already is. And so I think it would still be a huge, you know, a hugely significant player, right? It doesn't need to necessarily be number one. They'd like to be number one, I think, but they don't need to be number one, right, to be a country that can't basically be ignored and whose interests need to be taken into account. And this will, of course, probably be especially true within the Asian region where they're going to have the greatest influence either by dint of the reach of their military power or the depth of their economic relations or other kind of factors that sort of favor geographic proximity. And so I guess, you know, if I had to make a I guess we used to call when I was my brief stint as a management consultant to sweet wild ass guests that 100 years from now, China will, will still be a hugely consequential national economy, as will the United States. Now, again, I'm terrible at kind of futurism and predictions, but it seems like you know both countries have lots of natural capacities or sources of national influence that they are going to be with us for you know 
considerable period of time to come. Taylor, for those who want to track for your thoughts or want to just in general learn more about what you do, where would you point them to? Do you mean, uh, so I mean, I, I have a Twitter account, which I sometimes, I use sometimes more frequently than other times. So I have a website, taylorfrable.com, where most of my academic work is available on my, at my program at MIT, the Security Studies program. We try to make all of our faculties kind of webinars and podcasts, et cetera, kind of available in one place. And so I think those would be a few places to go to, unless I misunderstood your question to be like, where do I get my information? No, no, I'm giving you a total chance to self-promote <laughs> at that point. You're, your book is on Amazon, right? Yeah, I got it. My book, Active Defense, is on Amazon. It's actually, the paperback's only $22 now, which for an academic book, I mean, I realize it's a lot of money, but for an academic book, it's actually pretty well-priced. And uh, so for anyone interested in kind of sort of the history of China's approach to military strategy since 1949, and which you know, has you know, some projections about the future, I'd recommend it. I tried to write it as more as an accessible book than a like a really dense academic book. So there's a little bit of my discipline's kind of theory and method in there, but all the empirical chapters sort of stand on their own. So you can learn more about some crazy things that happened in the 50s and 60s in China or how China responded to the you know, changes in the sort of character of warfare after the Gulf War, after the Kosovo War. And maybe if there's another addition, I'll have to add you know, their views on the war in Ukraine. We'll, we'll save that for another. Yes. <laughs> everybody, get, please make, everybody, please make sure you follow Taylor here. Appreciate everybody that's here. And thank you, Taylor, for joining. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.